It's called Spudnik. We know. This is the last enema I'm doing. You picked that up at the nearest gas station. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Rearview Movies, where we are looking at old movies with new eyes. My name is Scotty Williams, and as always, it's my great pleasure to go on this mission with my gorgeous, beautiful, amazing wife, Heather, and of course, the brains behind the operation, the man in the chair, Trevor Kirkendall. How are y'all doing today? Doing good. I think we're both in chairs, though. (laughs) Looks like it, yeah. (laughs) Well, your chair is always going to sit a little higher anyway, that's what I think anyway. (laughs) <laughs> once, once once again you you sell me as way smarter than i actually am hey i'm, I'm gonna be starting a business doing it pretty soon i'm just gonna be looking at people's facebook profiles and making really great speeches for them i think that's okay. what I'm do. i bet it could make good money that way somewhat somewhat decent <laughs> well uh speaking of making money uh let's jump right into it talking about our movie for this upcoming episode and if you are following us on last episode when we discussed rudy we're going to be looking at a similar portrayal of real events uh trevor tell us about what we got well um so this one was randomly selected for us by our uh our multi-billion dollar movie selecting machine uh and this is the right stuff from 1983 uh for those that don't remember this movie or weren't around to see it um this movie is about the rise of the the mercury space program uh, in the 19 late 1950s and into the early 1960s. And of course the Mercury space program was the first manned missions into space. Um, big moment in the history of all mankind, I should say, not well, just and, American history. And in my general opinion, one of the coolest stories that should be told to every American school child. Um, there's a small chapter, a couple chapters in American history that are real testaments to American, you can call it American exceptionalism, but times we did exceptional things. And the space program, I think, is like number one with a bullet at one of those. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So uh, who are some of the, the details oh, on the key yeah. figures here, man? Well, let's see. We got uh, The Right Stuff, which was released in theaters on October 23rd of 1983. 40-year-old movie falling into that 40-year category. Uh, This is directed by Philip Kaufman, uh, written by him and Tom Wolfe. Great musical score in this movie from Mr. Bill Conti. Elite musical score, yes. Yeah, who is most famous for writing the uh, the Rocky theme. also, Karate Kid franchise music. I mean, the guy's mm-hmm. a rock star. We know that. Take the Rocky Challenge. Put on put on any song from any Rocky movie. Your chores will fly. You will fold laundry like a monster. I'm just saying. I do that every day. <laughs> you you clean up your house to Rocky? <laughs> no, nice. I was kidding. <laughs> oh, come okay. on. The, tra- the training montage, right? Da, 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 da. Everything is more epic with the Rocky music. Yeah, Bill Conti's legendary for that. Yeah. Uh, and we got a heck of a cast i mean just ensemble ensemble piece right here with just a ton of ton of people uh very young at this point um well except for scott glenn he was always old but um <laughs> he was born at 25 was, right yeah right <laughs> uh but yeah crazy cast uh scott glenn um sam shepherd barbara hershey ed harris dennis quaid super young dennis quaid uh fred ward veronica cartwright um pamela reed scott Poland, donald moffitt and uh mary joe deschanel uh really really extensive cast and i think there's probably even more folks in there um 
Jeff Goldblum, I think, has been left off this list. Um, Goldblum is on this too. list, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, very but, good part. Uh, yeah, so really, really great cast. Uh, very well, huge ensemble. Speaking of good cast and very young, uh, Heather pointed something out as we were watching this on the rewatch, and and as soon as it, you're not going to be able to go back to the moment before we said this, so I'm going to let Heather tell you about this. Yeah. So when we were watching it, I was like, "Hey, honey," I was like. That guy, that guy right there, he he looks just like Stifler. <laughs> and she was referring to Dennis Quaid. Yeah, he totally does. A hundred percent. Go back and look. He looks like Stifler. He looks like Sean William Scott. Yeah, look at young. Yeah, he take, totally does. Take take that real time, man. Pull up that image because you know Dennis got that big, like mouthy, almost Jokerish kind of grin because because how he's wide his, his mouth gets. Sarcastic smirk. Yeah. Well, and in yeah. the movie, he's kind of this like kind of frat boy, like yeah. alpha male type. Hey, yes. can you listen to me. Um, but in terms of the face, you're not going to be able to unsee it, man. I'm telling mm. you. That's all I could see the whole movie, and I was like, oh man. <laughs> So you thought Stifler was old Gordon Cooper. Nice. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, if they ever remake this movie, we know who we're hiring. Ta-da! You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if they could put together a a cast of this magnitude for a movie. And, and again, I say magnitude. Um, a lot of the people in this movie weren't necessarily household names when this movie, when it came out, of course. Um, oh, also jumping on fun facts. Guess how many speaking parts are in this film? Oh, gosh. a lot, a ton. Well, because Trevor, yeah. we talked about when we talked about Rudy last week. We talked about um, as you're developing characters. Remember, we talked about Rudy rolled a lot of his characters into one, mm-hmm. a lot of composites. Yeah, you should, you could do the same thing with a story like this, but you're yes. gonna miss some folks. One hundred and thirty-four speaking parts in this film. No wonder it was three hours long. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. Go ahead, go ahead and get that elephant uh, out of the room. Three hour long film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah. So uh, no, and Ed Harris, right? Four-time Oscar nominee, two-time Golden Globe winner. Just again, I think a really, really stellar cast of guys here, mm-hmm. and girls, of course, and girls. Yeah. Um, so Heather, tell us some of the uh, critical information about this film. All right, yeah. So this film had a budget of twenty-seven million dollars, and it actually lost money. So it only grossed twenty-one million dollars. So that's never what you want to see. Uh, But Roger Ebert gave it four stars and it did win four Oscars. It won for best sound, best film editing, sound effects editing, and best original music. Again, Bill Conti for the win, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And let's see, there were Oscar nominations for best picture, best supporting actor for Sam Shepard, best cinematography, and best art direction. Hard to believe a movie like that actually lost money. Which I think is going to be a central theme of this episode is is asking such a, how does a movie this well-made wind up losing money and actually effectively shutting down the production company. If I have the the, the production of the studio, the Lad Company was one of the companies involved in this and the failure of the film along with another film wound up leading to them shutting the doors. Huh. I did not know that. It was called the Lad Company, I think is what I read in my notes. Hmm. Um, Bratton, yeah. Go no, ahead. They, they they were still around for a while after this. We'll, we can talk about that a little bit. But. It may, I may have the time frame on it off, but. Yeah, it had a uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 96 and an audience score of 90. So again, it's hard to believe that with all of that, it still lost money in the theater. But I told Scotty, I said, I think it was just too long. I think that's no one's going to see a three hour runtime and be like, yep, <laughs> I'm going to go watch that. Mm-hmm. We should 
you know, kind of put that in context. There are a lot of three hour movies that are excellent films and totally worth every minute of watch time in my general opinion. Uh, now I would say most of them are historical films, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, Trevor, is there a movie you can think of that is unnecessarily long, maybe unnecessarily long, but it's still a really good movie. Well, I think the, the, the context piece that you were talking about comes into play here because you're going to have movies that were out in the seventies and the eighties. Well, maybe not the eighties, but seventies, sixties. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia is, three plus hours long dr Zhivago, the um sound of music godfather the godfather part two these are all really popular movies and they were popular movies when they came out they were box mm-hmm. office hits huh. so people were going to see them when they came out and then just the very next year after this movie came out 1983 uh 1984 we would see amadeus which was I think theatrically that was probably under three mm-hmm. and eventually, you know, the, the video release or whatever, they added some scenes to it that kind of pushed it closer to three hours, but that was a big hit too, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So there's another Oscar, another Oscar winner, but yeah. So again, I, I just think it is all about context maybe, or what the movie's actually showing, you know, think and feel the dreams. If you build it, they'll come, you know, like same thing here. If it's really mm-hmm. good movie, people are going to go watch it. So it's hard to say what exactly um, what exactly happened here that caused it, people not to go see it. Um, mm-hmm. Could have come up against something else that mm-hmm. came out around the same time, but uh, you know, I, I and even even more recently, you got like Avengers Endgame. I was going to point that out. The Avengers franchises did border on three hours, but you also remember that is a that's a film franchise that I would say deserves a little asterisk because they essentially took 10 years of storytelling and 10 years of characters that you then had to essentially one hit almost all of them in the making of that film. Right. That one is very unique in that regard. But then you got stuff like the new Avatar movie last year that was close to three hours or over three hours. Yep. How long I mean, was Titanic? Titanic was close. Titanic wasn't it? I was, was over thinking, three hours. yeah. Oh, that's one of the highest selling movies of all time. Wow. Actually, it's it. I think it's uh, Avatar, Titanic and Endgame are the top three biggest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And those are all three hours. So Right. Well, and, and again, that's that I think at least questions. I do think there are some real factors in the runtime of this film that could have been adjusted. We can get into that a little bit as we go through. But um, critically speaking, like you said, a lot of of praise for the film, but I think a question we could ask a lot and should kind of go back to again and again is, how does a well-crafted film like this manage to lose money? And ultimately, you know, again, by by at least one or two metrics, be considered an unsuccessful film. Mm -hmm. You know, but if you have this conversation, I would say it's a top three movie about space that doesn't involve aliens, right? Like you said, the previous episode. Sure, probably see that. It's not as good as Apollo 13. That's my favorite movie about space, period. <laughs> that movie gets me every time. But How about First Man? Did you see that one with mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong? Yep. yep. That chronicled him from the Gemini program, which was what came between this and the Apollo missions. Well, and, and even talking about the specific content matter, I think there's so much story to tell about the space program that I think the most successful tellings of it have been in series and miniseries. Like From the Earth to the Moon, that that story's, uh, that franchise that mm-hmm. was done, I think right around the time of Apollo 13 and was excellent. Right. And I think treated each mission, like each Apollo mission as a separate movie or something like that. Or as a separate series episode. Yeah, it was it was either that or it was close to one per 
episode, I think. Mm-hmm. So Heather, what did, uh, what did Mr. Roger Ebert have to say about this film? Oh, let's see what he said. He said, seen now in the shadow of the Challenger and Columbia disasters, the right stuff is a grim reminder of the cost of sending humans to space. It is also the story of two kinds of courage, both rare and of the way of the race for space was transformed from a secret military program into a public relations triumph. Another piece to Ebert's praise of this film is this was actually his number one movie of 1983 uh, on his top 10 list ahead of uh, the ultimate best picture winner that year terms of endearment ahead of the year living dangerously Fanny and Alexander Gandhi strange that he would put that in 1983 that was an 82 movie but something was wrong there and also his best movies of the 1980s overall number two of the 1980s behind Raging Bull oh oh wow high praise Interesting take. Well, and and I would say the two things that Ebert didn't like about the film are two things I would tend to agree with. The biggest one, my biggest gripe in general with the film in terms of portrayals is the way they portrayed Gus Grissom. I thought it was a little unfair in places. Your portray, your opinion or Ebert's opinion? So it was Ebert's opinion, and I tend to share his opinion. Uh huh. And, and for the for the fo- for the listeners who don't have context on this, so Gus Grissom was played by Fred Ward in the uh, in the film and Grissom was the subject of a somewhat controversial episode when he came back from his mercury mission in space mm-hmm. they were getting ready to uh, extract the capsule because the capsule had all the data they would need from the mission but in the process of things, a, a step was skipped and his hatch was deployed. When it did, it actually, as he was trying to get out, because the craft wasn't out of the water, the capsule flooded and drowned. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't get the data. And there was a lot of unfortunate kind of controversy around it. And even some unfair accusations around Gus Grissom that, well, he didn't follow steps. He freaked out. He got claustrophobic. And the film portrays him that way. Yeah. Like do. freaking out, yeah. looking around the cabin. Although most of the facts would later confirm that that's not what happened. In fact, it was a malfunction aboard something with the explosive bolts that led to the hatch deploying when it wasn't supposed to. One of his comrades was even so serious about it that he uh, deployed the hatch himself on purpose one time, because apparently if you deployed the hatch manually, the kickback from the button left a bruise on your hand. And so his comrade deployed the hatch at the end of one mission to see, hey, Gus never had this. This is what it looks like when you do it. Like they were that serious about it. Um, And also I'll point out, Gus couldn't defend himself in this conversation because he died in 1967, you know, years before this movie came out um, in an unfortunate accident while training for an Apollo mission, unfortunately, because a hatch wouldn't open, but that's a whole nother conversation. You know, I knew that, but I never put that irony together i guess in the scene where all the astronauts are kind of fussing with the with the builders about it and the and gus grissom brings it up there's no you need a hatch on this thing with explosive bolts and it's just i, I turned to heather i was like that's just so haunting because that is ultimately what killed him was a fire started in the capsule and him and his fellow astronauts couldn't get out Ooh, yeah they couldn't open the door mm-hmm. that's my biggest issue with it plus my other issue revolves around chuck yeager but we can talk about that as we as we get a little bit farther so trevor what did you enjoy about this film well i'm trying to remember when I first saw it. I saw it on videotape, I'm sure. I had to rent it from the, <laughs> the video store with the, the little rubber band that ties the two boxes together. <laughs> two video cassettes. It's extremely entertaining, I think, even at three hours long. Mm-hmm. I remember little bits and pieces here and there. I remember uh, Jeff Goldblum running through the hallway, busting in the room. To three different times, yeah. They yes. already know. They already know. It's called Spudnik. We know. We know. (laughs) Um, But uh, I'd forgotten the little banters between him and the other guy that kind of acted as the the comic relief at times. 
Mm-hmm. So that was nice. You know, and Goldblum, he's um he's perfect for that just because he's still doing his thing. Like I think this probably predated some of his more famous stuff. This might have been a more early role for him. He's great. I remember the uh flying around the earth mm-hmm. and just going, oh I'm like freaking out about the view. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of comedy in this film, like like a fair amount of it. Pretty well, pretty well interspersed, I would say. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's really good. But like I said, the the whole thing is just incredibly entertaining, and especially if you have any kind of passing interest in outer space and the space program. Which what kid doesn't? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I was probably twelve when Apollo thirteen came out, so I probably saw this around that time. Mm-hmm. just thinking about other space movies that I was able to see, and this would be one of them. But of course, I'd read all about the the space program and the Mercury, the Gemini, the Apollo programs. So I knew a fair amount. They were like, oh, who's going to be the first guy up? And just because I had read, I'm like, oh, I know who it is. It's going to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. identifying as I'm watching this, the guys that are going to go back up, the guys that are a part of these missions that are going to one day walk on the moon not all of them do, but John Glenn never did. Uh, yep. We know. Unfortunately, we know, Grissom never did. Uh, yeah, Grissom never did. So, um, and then Chuck Yeager, you know, he's was never a part of it. I mean, he was a part of it, but he was never one of the Mercury Seven. So, which I think is kind of the best little bit about this movie is his sort of, he's sort of the outsider watching all this happen mm-hmm. because he's not in there. So he's watching all these guys go up and he knows all of them. And I don't know. Do you think he seemed a bit, like upset or not upset but like uh bitter bitter yeah bitter that he didn't jump at the chance right yeah i think that's Mm -hmm. well and maybe the conversation that they had around that recruitment uh the recruitment story uh may have not hinted at that the right way because basically in the historical context the concern was that a lot of the leading scientists on the mission idea wanted to send animals up like they wanted to send monkeys and they had that conversation in the film yeah. mm-hmm. but basically the reason was was because they said well these people don't really need to know in fact at one point the the rumor is that as they were considering there's even a scene in the film where the congressman or the, whoever's in that room look at video of surfers or they look at video of race car drivers quote because they'll already have their own helmets like, yeah. like you know crazy kind of stuff like do I really need a pilot? Um, which of course, John Glenn then winds up proving you absolutely need a pilot because he saves himself and the spacecraft with the way he flies it on re-entry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, just an interesting detail uh, to that. I don't I don't know that Jaeger really regretted it, but then there's that whole conversation with him and his wife later on where she's like, don't you become a remember when? Because if you do, I'm going to leave you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so then he winds up continuing to try to push the envelope on going to faster and faster and faster. But uh, but Jaeger is, is an interesting one to talk about anyway as we get through this. Um, but Heather, how about the first time you saw this film? Well, this was the first time I saw this film. You did not see this film as a child? No, I, I did not. I had never even heard of this until it came up on this podcast. And I was like, oh, what is this about? <laughs> so. um, well, and my experience is somewhat similar. I did remember seeing it in pieces because this is one of my dad's favorite movies. My dad always had a thing for American history type movies. So like we watched uh, Stalag 17 together. He loves John Wayne movies. And he really did like this movie uh, the, as, as it goes. So the first time I saw it was in pieces as well. And I, I generally enjoyed it. But again, when you're a certain age, anything at three hours is going to be a tough sell for your, for your attention. Yeah. When you're like 10 or 12 years old, for mm-hmm. sure. Well, and I guess I'll jump in with the question I would have. And one of the biggest, my biggest knocks in the film in terms of the runtime, could this have been two movies? 
Well, in 2023, it probably would be. They'd probably try to maximize out the box office values or whatever. Or better yet, they'd do it as a series, which, oh my goodness, they did, which I haven't (laughs) seen because I heard it wasn't all that good. Uh, To much less critical acclaim from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it'd be interesting to see how they do it in a in a you know modern setting or whatever. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I've not I've not watched it. Um, I think it's Disney Plus, but I haven't gone to watch it yet. Well, and your source material for this, remember, the book is a seven hundred page book. Like, there's a ton of stuff in here in this. But no, Kaufman apparently, in being interviews about this film later, called it the longest film ever made without a plot. <laughs> It's true. Yeah. But not every movie needs a plot. That's the thing is everyone thinks that plot and story are synonymous and they're not. They're two different things. So your movies that don't really have a plot, they just kind of move along. Those can still be pretty good. They just don't Mm -hmm. have that structure that goes along with it. So, well, and here's where I think the dividing line should be between the two films. I feel like Jaeger's chase of the speed record of Mach 1 and all that stuff could have been made into a bigger movie. In fact, uh, most of Jaeger's criticism himself around the film is that they kind of, what is his exact terminology? There was a funny oral history that he talked about on it. And he said, oh, here it is. It said, Hollywood is in the business of make-believe. I didn't just walk out and fly the X-1 supersonic. It took unpowered flights and then nine uh, powered flights. That's not exactly how it happened, but I know you fellas have to flower it up is exactly what he said. But I feel like that Jaeger's film, Jaeger's experience going supersonic could have been the first film. And then you could have led into the Mercury film and into the Mercury situation as its own film. And then you would have had, you may have had two films at two hours each. You could have told the story in a longer, even more drawn out uh, fashion and still had a really good film because apparently the chief gripe between Kaufman and Wolf as they were adapting the screenplay, Kaufman was in love with Jaeger, apparently. Like he actually, at one point, apparently in the Wolf said that he thought that Kaufman thought Jaeger was the only one who even had the right stuff. He didn't think the astronauts had the right stuff. Well, that's sure how they present it early on. They're kind of mm-hmm. like, well, this is the guy and these mm-hmm. guys are just our second choice because this guy doesn't want to do it. Yeah. They're just, they're just uh, playing for second place because Jaeger is, is the man uh, as, as it would appear, even though the guy almost died because he over G'd and, you know, passed out and hit a plane. But again, bold is all get out incredibly brave and, and probably really important to some of those early, uh, some of that early knowledge they got as they were endeavoring to go to space. Well, and that's where all those, there's tons of test pilots out there that are never went into space, but they're the ones that are most responsible for us going there. Sure. Yeah. And that's not to say Jaeger doesn't have a role, but I actually feel like that could have been two separate stories. I mean, Heather, do you have any thoughts on the length of the film in general? Yeah. In the first hour and a half, because we watched this over two nights and then the first hour and a half, I was like, well, I already found 20 minutes they could have cut. And I think, you know, that whole thing about them, like being at this clinic or whatever and, and going through all these crazy tests, I thought it was long and drawn out and really could have been uh, summarized in, I don't know, maybe a three to five minute montage. Um, training, a training montage. Yeah, ex- montage. exactly. <laughs> we already had Bill Conti right there, ready to roll with the music. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but gonna, I thought I'm going to fly now while Scott Glenn runs through a hallway holding a holding a colostomy bag in his hands. <laughs> but really, I thought it was too long. I thought it was drawn out. And in just that that segment, I just I was like, nah, I don't want to see all that. You can wrap it up and move it along. <laughs> Um, well, but the, that piece is pretty critical because I think it's a it's a key piece from the book in discussing what the astronauts themselves had to go through. Because again, these were guys being trained to go to space. But what does go to space mean if only one person's been to space by this point? Yeah, they had no idea what to expect. They could just guess like, oh, it's gonna 
you're going to be going this fast and we calculate you're going to be pulling this many G's. So we need to train you for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's right. not something I ever want to do. No, feel that kind of G force. Oh God, absolutely not. No. Um, but even some of the other stuff, like hitting the switches upside down, and, and again, only because I'm this kind of guy. I was oddly, morbidly curious about the test where they made the guys walk around with balloons in a certain part of their anatomy, as as kind of a joke, right? So they had one of them doing it, and then Alan Shepard was doing it. Uh, and so I actually, number one, I looked it up because I was just morbidly curious. Um, and I did find a brief selection from the book about it. Uh, and again, going into just how much the astronauts had to deal with, it said the probings of the bowels seem to be endless, full proctosigmoidoscope examinations, the works. They were a bit humiliating. Conrad, uh, so this is about Pete Conrad, I guess. It says he's supposed to go undergo a lower gastrointestinal tract warning. Uh, this is not a spoiler alert, but this is a put your food alert away. In the so-called lower GI examination, uh, barium is pumped into the subject's bowels. Then a little hose with a balloon on the end is inserted in the rectum. The balloon is inflated, blocking the canal to keep the barium from forcing its way out before the radiologist can complete his examination. Wow. After the examination, Conrad now feels as if there are 85 pounds of barium in his intestines. And he literally, and then they had to walk, as the movie shows, through a hallway of regular people, get on an elevator full of regular people wearing backless hospital gowns. You know, hi, you've never met me, but here's my... <laughs> and, um, and then whatever kind of spiritual experience that trip to the restroom must be. But uh, but Heather, you caught something else in that too about the tall gentleman that was walking Shepard out. Oh yeah, that was a very bad voiceover. I heard that and I heard the dialogue and I was like, that is not that man's voice. Uh, his name was no Gonzalez. Uh, his name was- Yeah, his name yeah was that's Gonzalez. what his, yeah. I don't know why they dubbed him over. So Gonzalez was played by Anthony Munoz, like a professional football player for the Cincinnati Bengals. That's why he was huge. I just, I couldn't understand why they couldn't, wouldn't let Anthony Munoz use his own voice. I couldn't find anything about that. I don't know, but it had to be better than that voice ever. It was awful. Whoever wrote that, that was from the book, you said? Yeah, no, dead, yeah. pulled straight from the book. Apparently Pete Conrad did it. And there was a really funny scene where he had a showdown with the, with his general over it, because apparently they all had to like give themselves enemas every morning. And he was like, this is the last enema I'm doing. And they had a big like showdown over it. Well, I'd like to know what they thought was going to happen in space that they would need to do this particular <laughs> test. Yeah, exactly. Could not find a reason for this. Especially with some of these guys that, I mean, they weren't even going up that high. Jeff Bezos probably went up higher than Alan <laughs> Shepard did, you know? Yeah, maybe some of those, man, maybe some of those, uh, what is it, the tourist space fights they're doing now with like Blue Origin and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um well, and, and speaking a little bit again about the astronauts and how they were considered, Tom Wolf did give a statement about it. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking to. It says, uh, Kaufman's heart was with Jaeger. Not only that, he felt the astronauts, rather than being heroic, were really minor leaguers, mechanical men of no particular quality, not great pilots at all, simply the product of hype, which ironically is the way they were portrayed yeah, in is. the film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why they sent a monkey up first, right? Right. And and again, but but then it made us look foolish because Gagar and Yuri Gagar went up and I was like, oh, the Americans sent a monkey, the Russians sent a dude. Yeah. yeah. Well, they didn't say the Russians sent a dog up first. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And I think the dog died when it came back in. Oh. I think I could be very wrong on that, mm -hmm. but I think that's what happened. I don't know. I just keep thinking about first man because that was a very good, I guess, counterpart to this since it follows the Gemini program and the beginnings of the Apollo program, which in that one just focuses mostly on Neil Armstrong, but it still shows a lot about how things were done. And gosh, some of the stuff in that movie is great. There's a, there's a scene where, have you seen it? Scotty? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Heather, have you seen it? Uh, no, I have not. No. Okay. 
there's a scene where they send up uh neil armstrong and one of the gemini rockets and i think it's it's so intense and seeing it in the theater was really <laughs> something else because <laughs> all you see is the inside of the the rocket ship you don't see anything of the rocket blasting off you know like this one you see the rocket going up and it cuts inside and it cuts back outside and shows the rocket going up the Apollo 13 is the same way back and forth between what the rocket looks like as it's going into space versus what's going on in there sure but the whole time all you're seeing is the shaking of everything inside and you just hear these explosions going off which is exactly what's happening there's a big bomb going off behind your back as you're blasting off out of out of the earth's atmosphere it doesn't uh, sound like it should work right I mean, right yeah it sounds like an acme cartoon and i mean it's crazy because like right before they they right before it launches you can just kind of hear the the creaking of the of the the rocket as it's kind of swaying in the ocean sea breeze Mm -hmm. it's wild well and that's 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 a tough thing to, to picture right and it's tough to recreate that experience because apparently even the makers of this film wanted it to be more real uh, i was reading some stuff about how they really tried to push the limits of even how the sound came through in the theater like a couple of the uh, folks at the premiere were like i want to see the seats shake when that rocket takes off like they wanted to like max out the volume on the sound and really like blow it up oh, wow. uh, they wanted it to be disorienting they wanted to be passing out barf bags or, or something uh, of that nature like they wanted it to really communicate how disorienting it has to be like like trevor mentioned to be on a rocket blasting into space with all these random explosions i think you kind of feel that claustrophobic and nauseating feel in first man for sure so jumping in looking at some of the other actors on this film because there's a ton of great cast in this film and a lot of people who deserve to be uh credited one of them i would point out is ed harris who again uh four-time oscar nominee I've never seen the man have a bad role in his film. Apparently when he auditioned for this film with Kaufman, he was not happy with the way he read about it. And he was so unhappy with his reading that he left the interview room and walked out and basically laid a punch right under the first wall. He could get his hands on, he could get near. And that impressed Kaufman enough to cast him. Uh, <laughs> plus the fact that apparently he is a walking doppelganger for John Glenn. Yeah. He does bear a striking resemblance to John Glenn. That's for sure. You but, say you, know. you say he's a four-time Oscar nominee. How many do you know how many Oscars he was nominated for by the time this movie came out? Probably none at the time, I would guess. Zero. He was yeah. still he was still a long ways off. Right. And that's something that's tough to remember when you look at a movie like this in context. Because to my knowledge, I don't think any of these people wound up being nominated for major awards, except for Sam Shepard, who was nominated for best supporting actor for this movie. And I think if you're gonna, you know, when you look at ensemble movie like this and you're trying to figure out who's gonna be the guy you put forward to be your your acting nominee, first off, it's always gonna be supporting because there is no lead role in these movies. No, no. But you do want to look for somebody that is like kind of the heart and soul of it. So if you watch this movie and say one of these guys was up for an Oscar, who was it? It's I think that's pretty, pretty obvious. Sam Shepard is um, mm -hmm. is the guy. Well, in fact, I was uh, I was reading that talking about how well the actors are known when Dennis Quaid auditioned for this film. Randy apparently was a more well-known actor at the time than he was. Yeah, I'm trying to think in my head here. Uh, well, what year was vacation, right? Yeah, well, I think that was that might have been around the same time. Randy Quaid was in Midnight Express, which I think came out in the seventies. Have you seen that one? That's one we should talk about. Holy mm -hmm. mackerel! <laughs> you want to talk about intense? Woo, Heather, The Exorcist has nothing on that one. <laughs> oh, you are determined to give me nightmares for life, Trevor. Nightmare counter. 
Well, and, and Kaufman apparently was very high on Dennis Quaid's audition. In fact, uh, ironically enough, because both of these people work in Hollywood and were around cameras a lot, I guess, um, Kaufman couldn't figure out how to get the video camera for the audition tape to work when Quaid came in for his audition. Oh. And he looked at Dennis and was like, how does this work? Like, you push this button here. Dennis apparently had used it before, mm-hmm. showed him how to turn it on, did the audition. They finished it and none of the tape recorded because Dennis had done it wrong, too. Oh, no. <laughs> um, God, but, it couldn't have been that complicated. Well, right? before his part, Kaufman did say that uh, I think he said something like uh, we lost the best audition I'd ever heard. Oh, like wow. He was very praising of Quaid's audition. Well, I mean, he could be because nobody can see it. Uh, easy thing to say if there's no film to back it up. Right. Right. <laughs> so you're, you're right. Dennis, uh, Randy Quaid would have been much more well known by this point. This was 83. Vacation came out in 83. Mm-hmm. Right. But by that time, he had already been in a bunch of stuff. He was in, like I said, Midnight Express. That was 1978. He was in Bound for Glory. He was in Paper Moon. He was in The Last Picture Show, all these in the 70s. And then he was an Oscar nominee for a movie called The Last Detail, which is actually on our list from 1973. It's a it's a lesser known Jack Nicholson movie that's written by Robert Town, who wrote the movie Chinatown that Jack is in. Maybe well, and- we'll get to that one. Should right. our multi-trillion dollar machine tell us that's the one we're watching? <laughs> well, and, and we're, if we're going to talk about the actors and the cast... We have not mentioned one of, I think, kind of the unsung hero roles of the cast, which is all of the wives. Yeah. Um, some really good performances by the wives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Hershey's Glennis Yeager was awesome. Uh, I particularly liked Pamela Reed's uh, Trudy Cooper. I thought her role, especially that one scene where they first arrive at Edwards and she has to walk through this very long hallway away from the camera. It's very dark. And she's having to communicate with just her body language. I'm not comfortable here. I don't like this. And I just really, really well done by, by Pamela Reed. I thought. Yeah, she's great. Um, Barbara Hershey also awesome. And then uh, Veronica Cartwright. Yep. Playing, um, playing uh, Gus Grissom's wife. Mm-hmm. I still always think of her from alien. Of course. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, Mary Jo, I never say their name right. Deschanel, because this is uh, Zoe Deschanel's mom. Yeah. Um, this is, yeah. And dad actually was a cameraman or, or operated a camera for the film. Operated the camera or was he the cinematographer? That might be what he did. I, I'm sorry. Again, yeah. I'm still not 100%, but I believe he did work on the film yeah, because he was, he was quoted a good bit in the uh, in the oral history. He's the DP. Okay. And yeah. He's been around for a long time. This was his first of many Oscar nominations that he's... That he's uh, received but he's done a lot of stuff he's one of the i think he's one of the top cinematographers probably ever Mm -hmm. really and this was one of his first movies and he's done a lot of stuff since then and they've all like he's all been really really great Mm -hmm. Um, it looks like he has lensed the national treasure and in the same year the passion of the christ um he has done the natural he has done the patriot he did the lion king remake and he's credited as a additional so i'm not exactly sure what that means Mm -hmm. um but he's also credited as additional on thx 1138 which is george lucas's first movie Mm -hmm. he also did work on the godfather he did work on apocalypse now he did work on titanic and one more on here and because you had told me before we before we hit record that you wanted to talk about some other space movies sure that didn't have aliens so this might be 
a good segue into that. Sure. Why don't, you, why don't you start us off on that and I'll come back to this little piece here. Sure. So jumping into other space movies for a second, there are a couple other movies that sort of jump into this topic about space, getting to space, being in space, um, modern ones like Gravity, uh, other ones like that. But Trevor, what what are your like quintessential space movies, like the ones that you really like the best? Okay, so I'm always going to be very, very partial to a little movie called Space Camp. <laughs> um, I watched that movie when I was a child, and <laughs> I loved it, and um, had no idea that the the young actor in the movie, who's like 12, uh, had no idea that um, he was a member of the Phoenix family. His name is Leaf Phoenix. Oh, it's Leaf, that's right. Yeah, Leaf. yeah but who did Leaf grow up to be? Because he dropped the Leaf. Joaquin, right? birth name, Joaquin Phoenix. Yep. Yeah. So uh, very young Joaquin Phoenix in that movie. I think that was uh, drawing blanks now. I know that was the first role that what's his name? And damn it. Now I got to look it up. I hate this. I hate when like my my movie brain just says, nope. <laughs> well, it, and just to remember, Space Camp is the film where if I remember correctly, a bunch of kids basically like having a, a camp experience, kind of like war games. They wind up like as players in a major situation they thought was going to be just for fun. Yeah. So it's it's based on the actual space camp that's held in Alabama by NASA every summer. Oh, Leah um, Thompson was in it. Yeah. I was going to say like... Kate Capshaw, Kelly Preston, Leah Thompson, Tate Donovan, Joaquin Phoenix, Tate Donovan. That's who I was trying to think of. This was his first movie credit. He's been in a lot since yep. then. Um, but uh, yeah, Space Camp. Kids show up to Space Camp. They're going to have Space Camp. A little bit of fun they're going to have. They're going to do a main engine test on one of their new space shuttles. And they're going to let the kids sit in the rocket while they do main engine tests. First off, would never happen. Secondly, no. <laughs> secondly main engine tests would be done with it not connected to the ship. <laughs> um, and third, main engine test, even if it was connected to the ship, wouldn't be done with it sitting on the launch pad. But somehow they have they have to they have to they have to launch them because the movie has to happen that's right the movie has to happen <laughs> i think what what happens is the 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 joaquin phoenix character in this movie he, he's friendly with this little robot that runs around and he just gets all mopey and crying one night and he's just like oh i wish i was in space and the robot hears it and says oh well i gotta take care of that so the robot programs all the launch computers to say that there's this super duper rare thing that's happening to one of the rockets and the rocket's going to light unless they do something. So the only way to get around it is to light the other one. So both rocket boosters launch the thing up into space. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then he's like, hey, well, I, I helped my friend. He wished he was in space. Now he's in space. But first off, there's an abort switch, right? Which would have released the, they never talk about that. It would have released the space shuttle from everything. It would have turned back around and come back down. Any one and, of the eight of them could have hit it. <laughs> yeah. There's, 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 um, they don't have the radio set up on it. So they can't talk to them while they're up in space. They don't have enough oxygen on board, so they have to pull over. <laughs> Literally, they have to pull <laughs> over and get some oxygen for which oh doesn't my gosh. exist. Oh, yeah, it's so, it's so you just you picked that up at the nearest gas station. Yeah, it's all right. good. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's so cheesy, but it's such it's so movie for kids. And it did it did yeah. exactly what it set out to do, which was bring a whole new generation of kids into liking space yep. and get them to come to space camp. My parents never sent me to space camp because we lived in Illinois and that was in Huntsville, Alabama. It was a long way ago. Plus it was sure. expensive. <laughs> so, um, but um, yeah, it was uh, it's a really fun movie and I've watched it more recently, especially with my kid. And it's completely not anything 
that would ever happen, but that was always one of my favorite ones when I was younger. Well, but, and, and how many of those movies happen that way, right? There were, there were a bunch of those movies around that time period. Again, I mentioned war games, uh, a teenager playing a game winds up hacking into a, a, a major nationwide nationwide computer and almost sets off world war three. Yeah. Um, Iron Eagle, you'll remember where an adult winds up stranded in the middle East and his son and his, I'm going to play war buddies, basically outfit of plane and him and Lou Gossett jr. Fly together to go. That was the movie that uh, Johnny Lawrence was watching in Cobra. Kai, the, the Iron Eagle. Oh, yeah. Same idea, right? Bunch of kids essentially kind of circumvent the system and uh, find their own way to do things. Uh, Heather, what about you? Is there a space movie that you that you enjoy? Um, that's not really my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I mean, I don't really sit around and watch movies about space. That's not really my deal. So I don't think I. No, not really. Hmm. Well, then, then for me, number one with a bullet is Apollo 13. Yeah. Um, I saw Apollo 13 when I was very young. And uh, Apollo 13 is one of an incredibly small, and I'm a dude, so I'm going to say this, incredibly small handful of movies that I literally get emotional every time you come to the end of it. Um, you know he's coming out of radio blackout. Spoiler alert. You know <laughs> that they're going to be okay. You know they're going to make it. But during that three-minute segment where um, – where uh, Mattingly is trying to get him on the radio, Odyssey Houston, do you read? And everybody is holding their breath. And the moment where that shoot lands and everybody screams, dude, I, I'm sorry, I get emotional every mm-hmm. time. I think it's just such a well-crafted film. It's a good moment in the James Horner score to really yes. bring out those emotions to you as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And and just, a, again, great, great cast. From what I understand, lots and lots of time spent on the Vomit Comet getting those shots. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, that's what makes that movie impressive is the fact that they went up and did that that many mm-hmm. times um, and only were given about, you know, 90 seconds to roll. <laughs> and then kudos to the camera guys who had to hold these 80 pound cameras. And then all of a sudden <laughs> they don't weigh anything <laughs> in a weightless environment. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In two seconds. But yeah, that's my quintessential. And ironically enough, some of the characters from the right stuff, I knew their names because of Apollo 13. Huh. Yeah, like Deke Slayton, 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 yeah, um, uh, Conrad, some of those other characters. Um, you know their names well, and you knew about Gus Grissom because they talked about him at the beginning of Apollo thirteen. Yep, he's in there, and then you get them in. Um, you see that in First Man as well. Deke Slayton's in there. He's played by uh, uh, Kyle Chandler, mm-hmm. and then Gus Grissom is in there as well. He's played by um, Shea Wiggum, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's one movie that I think got very overlooked in more recent years but i want to ask everybody listening to this which is you two and one other person (laughs) um literally one other person uh so to our one listener and you two co-hosts uh i want you to find the movie and watch ad astra because that is stunning yes and i think brad pitt right yeah yeah because i think that movie was criminally overlooked and that's where um, Caleb Deschanel was also involved in that one as well. He wasn't the he wasn't the DP, but he was. It says he was involved in it in some form or fashion. But man, that's a great movie. And I don't know if it's just the tone or or what, but I think everything about that is fantastic. It's about a guy, uh, Brad Pitt, whose father was this hero astronaut that was basically sent on a one way mission out mm-hmm. into space to look for extraterrestrial life. And at some point during the mission, the uh, they they vanish and like wait wait it was a one-way mission so they did not expect this person to come back no 
okay. like a, it's like a crew but, of seven. But if it's a one-way mission and you send him specifically looking for something, how are you going to know if he ever finds it or not? Well, it'd be sending information back. You know, yeah, you can transmit. Yeah. Ah. Well, and, and while I was looking at that, another related space movie that I thought was actually quite good and did get a lot of attention uh, was The Martian. Oh, yeah. That was good. Yeah. I, again, good. lots of licenses taken with the science and, the, and, you know, the actual what that would be. I see. I, I don't I don't know. They say that was pretty, pretty sound like science sciencey mm-hmm. sci- sciencely sound i don't know <laughs> Science- scientific side of the yeah <laughs> there the we go yeah. Of things. Um, see i told but- you i'm not the brains of the operation <laughs> easy freaking words here um that uh I, I i've heard that the um that that little there's a lot that checks out about the science yeah. in that one i don't know i'm not in science i'm just gonna believe whatever i see on the screen but. well yeah but a, a really good a really good again movie that involves space and not necessarily yeah. aliens right now the best um, the best space I mean, movie that involves aliens of course is alien but that's a whole other story i i mean I, I could talk about armageddon but that's about all i got and you guys I, have made fun of me for that before so you know it started to snow right at the exact moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you know what's funny there were a couple of times that i thought to that back to that movie while i was watching this movie because they had a sequence where the astronauts astronauts uh underwent some serious medical testing and training there was a and they did it with a montage like heather was just talking about yeah so my wife is thinking is why couldn't this movie be more like armageddon (laughs) (laughs) and even with the montage that movie was still two and a half hours long right yeah yeah but yeah i love ad astra i think it it looks good it's a good story but yeah i guess they find his dad and he has to go out looking for him to like bring him back because apparently he's like gone off gone off his rocker Mm -hmm. and he's endangering earth I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away, but it's really, really, really great. I think. Mm. And um, I got like, there were some people that didn't like it and I guess I could see where that comes from, but I think it's fantastic. So find Ad Astra and check it out because I think it's fantastic. And I, I like how you mentioned the Martian too, because that's, mm-hmm. that was the recipient of the golden globe for best picture musical or comedy. <laughs> I think they they knew it wasn't going to win drama, so they had to throw it in there, you know, in order for it. The Golden Globes are weird. They do stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, certainly my favorite comedy of that year that it came out. Well, speaking of weird and comedic, to kind of jump to another topic, uh, I, I mentioned that the Ebert's biggest, one of his biggest criticisms of the film was the way Gus Grissom was portrayed. I stand by that. I agree. Um, wasn't really fair to p- pass that judgment on a guy who's already been dead 17 years. And for the record, the official story at that point already reflected that a mistake caused that. So in a way, Coffin was kind of rewriting history even. The other thing that Ebert had an issue with was his portrayal of one Lyndon Johnson. So while we're talking about weird, comedic, and goofy, what did you guys think of that portrayal? <laughs> yeah, they did kind of make him seem sort of silly. His line about, uh, who can deal with the housewife? I was like, really, dude? Yeah. You're pathetic. I thought a little overly comedic. Uh, now, I don't know for sure if Lyndon actually did try to elbow in on that. Like that scene with Annie Glenn was tough, right? We know why she doesn't want to have him in the house. She's not a good speaker. Right. Yeah. In, in addition to the fact that as the wife of an astronaut going through something serious, she is entitled to privacy if she wants it. Absolutely. Was he VP at this point or was he still senator? He was VP. Okay. So what I know about Lyndon Johnson, which is not much, I'm not going to pretend to be a historical scholar here. He uh, he didn't like being vice president because he had no power. Right. So if he was going to find something to do, he was going to do it where he could at least utilize some 
bit of power, I suppose. The only reason why he was picked for that is so that he could deliver Texas to Kennedy. Right. President. Well, and was- and the, su- the Southern vote in general, because it's hard to remember in context, but Kennedy was a Catholic and had to deal with some unfortunate um, insinuations that he was actually going to like turn the United States over to the Pope or some stupid crap. Yeah. Yeah. Which because is- he was the first non-Protestant president. So I know Johnson didn't like that. He he did it for whatever reason. I guess he figured it'd be he'd be more powerful, but he wielded a lot more power as the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, which is where he was before uh, before that. Um, well, and the so- movie does span two administrations because at the beginning of the film, it's Eisenhower, and I think Johnson is still in the room. I can't remember, but uh, Linda, but Eisenhower's president, voiced by someone else for some reason. But yeah, so I don't think it's too far out for him to be like, oh, I can take this space thing and try to, I can deal with housewives. So maybe it happened mm-hmm. in some in some respect, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because the man was just sitting there looking for something to do until he could, you know, until he could assassinate the president. Sorry, no, that's conspiracy. Sorry, we're not talking JFK here. We already said there was a helicopter over the house, man. You're trying to get us in trouble. (laughs) Well, speaking of trouble, one of the last things I will point out, um, apparently the real life John Glenn was uh, considering a run of the presidency around the time this film was put out. And it actually garnered a good bit of the attention in the narrative because there was a Newsweek cover with Ed Harris on it that basically said, can a movie make a president? Because John Glenn was going to run for president and he did run for president, uh, lost the Democratic primary to Walter Mondale. And at the end of the day, who was running for president from the Democratic ticket that year did not matter because Reagan completely obliterated it. Yeah. but interesting well, question to consider that the time we were looking at, you know, is is popular success in a movie going to propel someone to the presidency when much later in our American history, a reality show would propel someone to the presidency? Well, we could argue how much The Apprentice actually <laughs> weighed into that. But I would say that even though he tried to run for president, didn't get it, you know, the man still had a very, very long Senate career. Yes, and, he did. And, uh, 100%. and even uh, I believe he was even considered maybe a vice president as a as a candidate yeah like he could have been a vice presidential candidate i think to mon not to mondale but uh carter yeah and then carter ultimately picked mondale but he could have picked he could have picked uh john glenn he he went with mondale instead and then i guess in 1980 what was it four then yeah mondale gets it over glenn again right and and then reagan wins every state but one yeah but one i mean yeah and DC, don't forget. He and DC, yeah. yeah, complete electoral smackdown. Later to talk about it on review politics, but yeah, man. Um, so speaking of like kind of putting a bow on things, um, Trevor, your second viewing of the right stuff. What did you think? I mean, I probably appreciated. I probably appreciated it more. I still think it's very good. It's extremely entertaining. A lot of very humorous parts that make those long drawn out segments interesting you know Mm -hmm. you say yeah they could cut it out sure they could have cut it out but they didn't and in its place they put all this goofy stuff so the astronaut selection or whatever with jeff goldblum and movie brains not telling me who that other guy was but um Uh, shearer harry shearer i believe his name oh yeah see duh um but yeah like that that kind of humor and that kind of stuff to really keep you engaged and keep you entertained throughout a long three hour movie. Um, this is still, this is still one of the best movies from 83. Um, maybe in another world, it would have won best picture and instead of terms of endearment, I'm not sure, but yeah, it was, it still holds up. It's still got the right stuff. <laughs> uh, Heather, how about you? 
Well, as I mentioned before, this was the first time I I had ever seen this film and I did enjoy it. I enjoyed learning more about the space program and what it really took to get there. I didn't know anything before this about test pilots and that they really were risking their lives. And that kind of catapulted us into this whole space race with Russia. So it was, I mean, overall a good film. Um, I do think there were some parts that could have been cut, but I did really enjoy it. Well, and I'll say that I I also liked it a whole lot better um, on the second viewing, really because I got to, you could appreciate what it told and the story that it told. Um, Christopher Nolan called it an almost perfect movie uh, at one point while he was talking about it. And I can understand that. It's a very well-made movie. And I also think it's a good example of the fact that not every movie should be judged by whether it did or didn't make money. Because again, the film doesn't make its money back, ultimately is considered a failure in that regard. But on the rewatch, later viewings, it's it still, I think, holds up very well, especially due to the great performances of the cast. There's no correlation between box office returns and how good the movie is. Because the last, what, 20 Best Picture winners, for instance, not that not that all of them were good and not that that's the best benchmark to measure a movie on. But it's a clear one. It's a clear one. It's one that's there. Those are not box office smashes like they used to be. Right. You know, every now and again, you get one that did well. But I mean, just because it doesn't make any money doesn't mean it's bad. Like the Hurt Locker, Mm -hmm. for instance, that's like the that's like the least grossing Best Picture winner of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But we know, I mean, you and I went and saw that. That's fantastic. Yes. uh, Very, very tense. Edgier a very good movie in general. Yeah. Um, and and as another example, Heather and I just a few just last week went to see the film uh, Past Lives. Uh, not going to be a huge blockbuster film, but ridiculously good. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Um, you'll have last year's Best Picture winner from the same studio that did Past Lives. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Gosh, what kind of that is not a movie that wins Best Picture, and yet it mm-hmm. did. But right. that's also that's also not a movie that wins or that earns a hundred million dollars at the box office either. But it did because if you make good movies, people are going to come see them. And that's exactly right. what that was. So, Oh, no. Yeah, that movie was phenomenal. Well, speaking of phenomenal movies and, and the next part of our journey, uh, Trevor, you want to talk about what uh, what uh, Awesome O Computron or Computro is going to spit out for us? We're going to hit the button and we're going to find out. Find the whammy noise and let's get that on there. No whammies, no yeah. whammies, no whammies. Yeah. Okay. And and when I and when I say but in the episode, just bleep me out. I just want to pretend. Okay, fair enough. We're gonna leave that in there so everyone knows. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh oh, Trevor's really excited. What yeah. is, it, is it the exorcist? Is it time? No, no. it's not. It's not Don't do that to me. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, Jurassic Park. Oh, man. Jurassic Park. Excellent film. Let's go. I'm ready. I don't even need to watch it again. (laughs) I can can just sit back and like give you the movie right now. Here we go. First scene. Life finds a way. (laughs) Yeah, I did say that earlier in this episode. (laughs) Here we go. Fade in. Exterior. Well, folks, uh, that just about does it. Uh, The next episode is going to focus on the 
amazingly great film, Jurassic Park, which we'll have all kinds of great things to say about next episode. But in the meantime, we're so glad you chose to listen to us as we talked about the right stuff. Do check it out if you want to see some classic space footage. But on behalf of Trevor and Heather, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you follow us on all of the social media platforms. We would love to start a conversation with you. If you think something we said was crap or you think something we said was good or you have a question, we would just love to talk to you. So hit that button and subscribe and uh, we will see you the next time we look at an old film with new eyes.